You're listening to National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Welcome back to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. And on today's um, episode, we'll be talking about an aspect seen in acute medicine, particularly oximetry, and what that and oximetry at home solutions, um, what they're designed to do, why that matters, and how we've seen sort of over the past 12 months and beyond um, programs around that unfold at both a national and a local level. I'm delighted to be not alone in these conversations, though, but rather joined by a group of experts, joined by Matt Inada Kim, Iram Patel and Catherine Dale to offer their insights and expertise on the matter. So we'll introduce each of them individually. So first, in no particular order, Matt, thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks very much. My name is Matt Inada Kim. I'm the National Clinical Director for Infection, AMR and Deterioration and the lead for COVID oximetry. Perfect. Um, Iram, yourself? Hello. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Iram Patel. I'm a respiratory consultant in South East London and I chair the South East London Respiratory Network and I'm also clinical director for London for respiratory. Amazing. And by no means least, Catherine, yourself as well. Hi, I'm Catherine Dale. I'm the programme director for patient safety and experience in the Health Innovation Network the Academic Health Science Network for South London. And I was one of the co-leads of the National Workstream for Deterioration as part of the Patient Safety Collaboratives, where we did the, we led on the COVID oximetry at home work nationally uh, before it became a national mandate. Perfect. And as we've sort of ran through there, all three of our guests today are very much experts in this field compared to myself. Um, so to jump straight in, and I guess we'll go first to Matt yourself um, and then bring in Iram on this as well. Um, could you just give her a little bit of a, a description and understanding of sort of the situation around this and why sort of oximetry, pulse oximeters, they've become such an important sort of instance um, particularly over the last 12 months with COVID um, obviously some of our audience may be aware of it but there'll be a large portion that these may be either new terms or they're terms that they hear in their day-to-day job but don't necessarily have that full knowledge of. Right early on in the pandemic we saw as clinicians and patients that patients were presenting often quite late in the course of their illness Um, because of the presence of this concept of silent hypoxia which uh, I'm sure all of you have heard about Um, so the presence of very low oxygen levels, obviously with an absence of significant breathlessness, was a hallmark of how COVID presents and is indicative of its pathology and the reasons for its being. So the hypothesis from the medical uh, clinical professions and from patients were that empowering patients with actual monitoring devices and knowledge and training Um, to look and spot and monitor for oxygen levels early on in the course of COVID would lead to earlier presentations to the emergency services where appropriate and admission was required rather than delayed admissions at a point where patients in some ways were unsalvageable. So this was all about empowerment, um, giving and sharing knowledge and a, a we're in it together attitude. How can we make the situation better? How can we improve our survival rates, improve our earlier detection and our earlier admission rates with with COVID? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, um, Iram, to add to that, as sort of a clinician and involved in the sort of clinical side, yourself and your colleagues, um, being able to implement measures that 
improve and speed up that identification process, I imagine has a massive impact, not just on identifying the case, but the outcomes and the treatment that can be given in these instances. That's completely right. You know, a a pulse oximeter is actually a very simple um, measurement tool. Um, Patients need to be trained in how to use it, and there are um, issues to be aware of. But generally speaking, particularly as a uh, as a as a lung doctor, a respiratory clinician, you know, uh, somebody's oxygen saturations is, uh, are a really important physiological measure. But I think it's fair to say that until this reached such prominence in in both um, clinical consciousness and public consciousness, the idea of oxygen saturations being an important uh, way to assess how well or unwell someone might be was not that prominent. So, you know, I think being able to Um, have access to this simple measurement at scale and to support patients and non-specialist clinicians to to easily use these and support patients to get them to the right care and assessment as soon as possible uh, was hugely helpful. Um, I think the other place where it was helpful, of course, was in helping to discharge patients into a supported program through something called the COVID virtual ward. So again, helping people to leave hospital, get back home as soon as possible, um, but also to know that they were still being monitored and safe with with a pulse oximeter was a really helpful intervention. Definitely. And just to quickly obviously add to that, you mentioned it is quite a simple um, measurement and the ability to potentially empower patients and sort of non-specialist clinicians to be able to take those measurements as well relieves a little bit of that burden on the specialist staff who probably have to deal with the more severe cases i imagine exactly right you know of course our our health uh, our health services were under huge pressure um particularly as the second uh, large wave of covid hit for us uh, uh, you know and and so being able to direct our resources appropriately and look after far more patients than we could necessarily see individually face to face and remotely with the help of this bit of kit um meant that you know it was a greater bang for your buck for each hour of clinician time as it was absolutely and i suppose we'll jump over yourself catherine um from the sort of role that you played um i imagine sort of getting buy-in effectively to take these measurements and to be involved um, from both staff and clinician, uh, staff and patient, sorry, perspectives. A lot of that probably grows exponentially as people become aware of it. They see physically the sort of results of it because while we've probably known for a very long time, the likes of oximetry has its benefits in respiratory care. In these last 12 months, we've seen a lot more in the public eye, the role it can play. Um, Sort of is that a key point that yourselves and your colleagues have to make to get that message out there and sort of help spread the positive word so that it is a widely accepted system? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the the thing for me as a non-clinical person mm-hmm. um, coming in and we had before COVID, we'd, in patient safety, we'd been paying quite a lot of attention to deterioration. So what happens when someone gets um poorly really quickly and what are the ways in which you can notice that early and do something about it and within that there's a number of different measures including um, including pulse oximetry but I didn't really know very much about pulse oximetry or hadn't paid that much attention to it and I remember in around April or May of last year when we were kind of looking at how are we monitoring people's deterioration generally and looking for not just COVID, but the other reasons why people might get sick quickly. And Matt started 
presenting some of the evidence that pulse oximeters were a key part of this and then demonstrating to us with very vivid diagrams the impact this might have on the pathways and the ways in which the system would could and should manage people. And I was just a bit overwhelmed at the time. I wasn't sure if this was something that we all needed to be doing. It was still so still so much a time of people just needing to deal with people coming through with COVID. But this taking a kind of preventative approach and really monitoring people kind of like and seeing whether their clinical condition was likely to get much worse was something that it took it took some time to identify that that was a really key part of the system Mm. and then what did we need to do to change things to adapt to that Um, and what was really fantastic was that Matt connected with a number of clinical colleagues around the country about the impact that this could have on services. And it really felt like it was a clinician to clinician message that got through about how this could make a difference for patient outcomes. And then we as managers and administrators in the system helped to support to make the changes into the services so that that could happen. Yeah, definitely. And that sort of leads on very nicely to yourself, Matt. Um, Obviously, Catherine's done a great job of explaining some of the work that you also did in that. But I imagine having sort of a lot of those clinician to clinician conversations and being able to have very honest conversations about sort of the benefits it will bring and sort of experiences that had already been had from yourself, that has a massive sort of impact, I imagine, um, in making change because often in the NHS, one of our great strengths is we are one organisation that is made up of lots of little organisations that want to collaborate. Um, I suppose my, my question very much is that, um, is that the benefit you saw being able to have those very sort of open conversations at an equal level? I think just not contradict what Catherine just said, this was certainly not about just clinicians. Um, managers were critical to this. They really were. Um, and and I think one it, it was one of the real joys of this project. As a clinician, you think a lot a lot of clinicians feel they control and do everything, and that they are the the Knights Templar of everything good in healthcare. And what this really has demonstrated in spades, I think, for all those looking in, is just how critical good managers are and the role they play in all of this, because they were the gel that held all of this together. Clinicians come come up with some crazy ideas, some of them good, but unless you've got that partnership working with great management it ain't going to go anywhere and um this partnership is one for life and and certainly one of my real takeaways going forward it was about that collaboration not just of clinicians but of managers together with patients and those stories and as you say those local networks were really important in terms of driving that in each locality so you can divide up the country into the 15 academic health science networks and that becomes your building block for how we address this and how we should probably address all manner of conditions that's what it showed me. It showed that regions are really, really important going forward, joined together around a national collaborative aim. Mm-hmm. And that this model of, I think, academic health science networks is one that's here to stay. Yeah, certainly. So sticking with you, Matt, on that, as you say, the academic health science networks, they're very much an opportunity to share sort of locally. But I imagine one of the other big strengths they can have is these sort of innovations that we see or these sort of changes in the way we deliver services, the likes of post oximetry, that could come down from a national point and very much share the same data we're seeing, but not necessarily have the expertise to sort of locally 
alter or tweak or amend what needs to be had. Having these sort of 15 mm. sort of groups of experts that know their area, know their people, know their services, yeah. I imagine just adds that extra level to it. Definitely. And the iterative learning is so powerful. So local context is everything here. Um, and, and, and actually, that empowerment to localities and regions was a really critical point that actually drove this forward. And Catherine chaired a wonderful learning network where we came together fortnightly at the beginning, where everything was shared. There was no there was no copywriting of information or intellectual property. Everyone just shared what they were learning about COVID, how to improve outcomes, how to improve processes as generously as possible. Um, we had a, an e-learning forum on the Deterioration Forum, which was an asynchronous discussion forum now with over a thousand members that, that carried on the conversation in between meetings. And again, everything was generously shared. Implementation toolkits, the early evidence, what processes required, down to what scripting and call scripting was required between individuals, training materials, e-learning videos, animations, translated resources, um, and just a general network of support because it can be a lonely place when you're trying to drive forward improvement in one specific area in each one of your localities when you suddenly realize that you've got a thousand colleagues who are doing the same thing everywhere it emboldens you and also gives you strength that was the power of the collaborative network and why regions and a national overall arching aim is so important absolutely and um Iram will come across to yourself um obviously a lot of what Matt and Catherine have described there is very much sort of a national view focusing in on the local areas but as someone who is very much sort of covering South London um, and that region were your experiences sort of similar in this as well? I think they certainly were um, I guess I was lucky to have a sort of a London view but also a specifically much more local southeast London footprint mm-hmm. view and I guess what I would add to the comments that uh, Catherine and, and Matt have made is the is the integrated care system, because I think that will also be, with the AHSNs and the AHSCs, a key delivery vehicle now, we hope, of uh, you know population level, locally informed, cohesive team working. And I think a lot of what we learnt as we came together um, or refreshed what we were already doing as a respiratory network for our integrated care system um, and broadened that to bring in other partners was a great test bed, I guess. It built the relationship for for how the ICS will work, I think, going forward, and particularly how our respiratory network will work going forward, thinking about what we can take in terms of learning from the, the remote monitoring work for COVID, that, you know, the, the co-produced clinical and operational work um, in terms of other long-term conditions and and how we now think about remote monitoring, you know, and addressing the long-term plan directives that we have, certainly for lung health in our population. So I think great relationships were built and ways of working that we can now take forward. Yeah, definitely. And staying with you, Iram, slightly on that, obviously, when we sort of first introduced this topic, we were talking about it, the, we sort of had a lot of conversations where oximetry was starting to happen during the first wave, but particularly sort of the second wave of COVID and around the Christmas time, obviously you mentioned you had a London view. There was particularly a key focus in sort of the urgency that appeared in London over that Christmas period. Was this sort of collaboration very key to how you were able to respond as an area, both locally and more London-wide? I certainly think so. I mean, none of us is going to forget that particular December, January, are we? I don't think there was any days off at all in that in that time. You know, it became very clear to us very quickly 
taking a London and South East London view that we needed to mobilise this and we needed to do it at pace because the pressure was building in the system. We could see what the data looked like. We could see that actually this was a key aspect of early intervention and care that wasn't consistently in place with lots of lots of people with the best will in the world having a slightly different idea of what it was um, and so a consistent drive to get that out was critical and uh, yeah it was pretty much full steam ahead wasn't it and and it was helpful to have the London Clinical Academic uh, Leadership Group ratify some of our key um, you know key documents that that really said this needs to happen and needs to happen by here are the time frames and here are all the resources that we can give to work with with colleagues and to support it happening quickly so yeah. the AHSN is key to that absolutely and it very much that is the way that we introduce especially at pace sort of innovation into the NHS it is through sort of the collaboration across the board as you mentioned the HSN having a key role also I suppose over to yourself Catherine um I imagine a lot of the sort of administrative and a lot of the sort of non-clinical so to speak roles were just as important as well to be able to input into this and be able to sort of turn what was a good idea into what we ultimately saw became a national mandate. Yeah, that's right. And and I think a lot of that um, was brought about from really practical things like finding uh, standard operating procedures that had been used in other parts of the country and making them available to people in London and saying, is this one going to be useful to you? Or what about this one? Mm. And kind of comparing and contrasting. And you had to you had to fit things to the local context um, and how things were working. So it, as Erin was saying, it was so helpful to have the clinical leaders in London kind of authoritatively saying, this is what you need to do. This is what we're trying to achieve. But you also had to have the practicality of how are we going to go about that? in this specific context with this particular services that we've got in place. I've got this image of um, building Lego. So you've got the picture of the Lego that you're trying to deliver, um, but then everybody's got a different bunch of Lego pieces that they're working with. And you had to examine what were the pieces that you already had? How would you build the picture that you were aiming for? Also, which bits of the picture were absolutely essential and which bits of them were discretionary? And if you didn't have those pieces, and also could you use the pieces in your Lego in a slightly different way? It was all of that thinking at pace, which was a real combination of the kind of project and practical minded and managerial stuff and clinical insight and knowledge really working together and and at pace and under pressure like well I've certainly never known in my experience Mm. Um, but the the way in which people really galvanized their efforts was absolutely incredible and it was an honor to be a part of actually certainly and I suppose Matt as well from the AHSN sort of role sticking with the brilliant analogy we'll say of of the Lego um, I imagine the HSN with their slightly broader sort of regional view had that opportunity to have the picture and be able to work with all the different stakeholders in the area to work out what bricks we had available to us and put them together. Uh, Yeah so um, that was very much the HSN game plan to an extent 
and going further, you know, this is also about, I come, I guess, coming up with new instructions along a similar theme. Mm. So it's kind of like the Lego analogy that Catherine brilliantly brought up around themed sets and about the fact that actually now we're at the next stages of how we build on what we've done with COVID, learn from it, apply it to other conditions that sit within the acute realm, but also, but are not limited to it. We're looking also at preventative, proactive care as well. This is forced a re-engineering of healthcare on so many different levels. And this is where academic health science networks really excel. The cutting edge of thinking and innovation of integrated care solutions that bring together an entire care pathway and form a new direction of travel for the NHS as a whole. Definitely. And I suppose to go to my next question, which I think you've already slightly teased to anyway, um, of what's sort of coming next with it. But it very much, I imagine, is taking sort of a lot of the learning we've had and in this huge period of change where we have an opportunity to not necessarily do things the way we've always done them. Um, I imagine it's very much continuing the momentum that we've seen yeah, well, the partnerships we've built already are a great founding block. Our challenge is now the what do we address next that is both credible and prescient to people involved already to focus and, and distribute their energies towards. Um, we don't want to lose the momentum. We also don't want to, we don't want the engine to go idle and turn off or, or stall because, you know, we may well see a third and fourth peak later on this year for one reason or another. And we just need to make sure we are ready to go at a moment's notice, firstly. Secondly, and then apply this to other conditions as we try and get business as usual up and running, as we try and get elective care restored by improving the flow through our emergency sector and our other urgent conditions. This is the beginning of, of a whole new chapter in the way we deliver healthcare. Absolutely. And I suppose sticking first clinician side, um, Iram will go to yourself as well. Um, from your sort of point of view, is it very much the same as what Matt said going forward? Um, what do you see sort of the next steps being? Yeah, I think I agree. I think we might have to look with fresh eyes at some of what we thought we knew before. So for example, if we take the example of COPD, you know, pre-COVID, we would have said there really isn't very good evidence about remote monitoring for patients with COPD. It's not cost effective. But I think what we need to do is change, frame a new question. Um, what is it that, that patients and clinicians in the healthcare system need um, that remote monitoring could deliver that just wasn't a, a need as we as we considered it before, um, which is that patients just, you know, don't no longer think it's right that they trek up to outpatient clinics every six months, you know, and, and why should they? So a lot of light bulb moments, I think, that we can now apply. And it's not good enough to say, well, the evidence isn't there. Well, let's build new evidence and let's ask a different question. We might find that it does answer our need. Definitely. And um Catherine, by no means least, will ask yourself as well, as um, both Matt and Aram have said, there's been a lot of sort of light bulb moments, a lot of sort of rediscovering or thinking in new ways about similar challenges that have existed for a long time. But um, from your point of view and your sort of involvement, um, where do you see sort of the future? Yeah, thanks. I think within the the Patient Safety Collaborative, which is the patient safety arm of the um, AHSNs, there's, I would say, the bits that I 
I think we could have done even better in this work was real engagement with patients. And I think that's a really interesting area to um, work on next. What does this feel like from the perspective of people receiving these services? And where do they see the opportunities? I think sometimes when we think about monitoring people, there's been some really interesting challenges with that around COVID because of um, the ways in which the identification of, of COVID positiveness has had an impact on people's lives, not just from a health perspective, but in so many other ways. But how helping people to feel really empowered within that and helping us as patients to get feedback on how well we are and how we need to engage with services. That's that's a really interesting way of exploring this forward. But I think I'd still build on um, what others have said. I think this was such a fantastic example of integrated uh, working, a real practical example of bringing different parts of services together and bringing people together to solve a problem collectively and I'm very excited at, at all that we've learned and that we've experienced in that and how we can apply that um, to different challenges and there's many challenges like that within healthcare so I think the impact of this I hope will be really felt in a number of different ways. Absolutely as you say sort of the crux of everything we've talked about today comes down to that collaborative working that sort of shared desire to improve both the services delivered the way they're delivered and the benefits that are felt both from the clinician the staff and the patient side i think sort of from everything we've discussed it's been a fascinating conversation and i'm sure all of those listening will have really benefited from hearing what is a very real example of the collaborative work that we've heard of throughout in the pandemic. To Catherine, Iram and Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to her. As we've heard throughout today, we're all very busy people, but it's been amazing to sit down and get a real insight into this sort of opportunity, the success we've seen, and hopefully the success that we'll be able to build in the future from this. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.